I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 will be our text for today. Zechariah is almost at the end of the Old Testament. It's the book right before the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Go ahead and be finding Zechariah 9.9. Did you know that donkeys can be as small as 32 inches high and about 180 pounds on the hoof? We had a Great Dane once that was that big. (laughs) And I would imagine that a colt of a donkey or the foal of a donkey would perhaps even be smaller. But don't worry, because pound for pound, donkeys are stronger than horses. And given the average Jewish man in the first century would have been about 5 feet tall and 110 pounds... I have no trouble believing that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Some of the pictures showing an oversized Jesus and a tiny donkey with his feet dragging the ground are, are not accurate. The donkey would have easily bore his weight. It is Palm Sunday when all around the world today Christians like us are gathering in the name of Jesus to celebrate His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that triumphal entry we read about in Matthew 21 was to accomplish two things. Number one, it was to fulfill ancient prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. And number two, it was Jesus' final offer to Israel of the kingdom while He was present on earth. He was legitimately offering them His kingdom come. That which the choir just sung about and which we pray in the Lord's Prayer over and over was what He was in fact offering to the children of Israel on that day. And so it was a monumental occasion. In fact, every gospel writer speaks of Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And when every gospel writer speaks of something, that is rare in and of itself. Matthew and John will quote Zechariah 9.9 as they speak of it. It is our text of the day. Look at it with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, The foal of a donkey. This great text begins with rejoice greatly. Be overcome and overwhelmed with joy. Be ecstatic with happiness. O daughter or people of Zion. Zion is Israel. Zion is Jerusalem. It represents the nation. That great mountain where the temple will be rebuilt in days to come. Here as this text begins, it is a call to a serious celebration. A serious rejoicing. In fact, this is no time for soft singing. This is no time for muted lips. This is not the day for casual, ho-hum joy. No, this is like the birth of Christ. This is a time for great joy, expansive rejoicing for the daughter of Zion. Something 
monumental is happening here. Something eye-catching and stunning and awakening is happening here. The writer goes on using Hebrew parallelism to repeat the call and to expand this call to worship. Not only is it to uh, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, but the next line. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Get loud, he's saying. Lift your voice, he's saying. This is likely a call to sing. Just as the children did that day. This is a call to sing because, after all, singing is just controlled shouting. (laughs) Singing is not screaming. It's controlled shouting, raising our voices beyond our volume and normal speech. If I was to describe to you a scene of high fives, of jumping and shouting, of people screaming with delight, what comes to your mind? Game-winning touchdown, a basket at the buzzer to win the championship, the walk-off home run in Game 7 of the World Series. That's, That's what our culture does, right? People scream and jump and shout and lose their minds with joy in those occasions. This is something like that. Rejoice massively, O daughter of Zion, and lift your voices in song, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because your king is coming to you. Look, behold, check this out. Your monarch, your sovereign is coming to you, Israel. And he is a new sovereign unlike any king that had come before him. No king in their history would be like this king. He comes to Israel to provide for them, to protect them, and to save them. Save them from their sins and save them from their enemies. If there is a threat to his people, he will save his people from that threat. Behold, your Savior King, your royal monarch is coming to you. You need to understand this morning that Jesus Christ is God's plan for world peace. Jesus Christ is God's plan for peace for Israel. The plan is a person. He is the plan. All of the chips are on him. All of the weight is on him. Everything depends on him. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. What can we learn from this? for ourselves and for our own times of worship. Worship is one of our four pillars as a church. Worship, walk, work, and witness. And in worship, we want to call you to both a corporate worship, but also a private and individual and family worship. But especially when we gather like on Sunday mornings, like this morning and like next Sunday morning and the next Sunday morning. When we gather to worship, our worship should be loud. And we're not going to flash the signs like they do at the Spurs game. Get loud, get loud. But I'm telling you that this morning, it should be loud. We should lift our voices and rejoice greatly. Our singing should be joyful singing as redeemed of the Lord. We are to be engaged in our worship, enthused in our worship, energized in our worship, and eager in our worship. 
And to encourage you in this, I want you to consider our vantage point in human history. We are in between the first and second coming of Christ. We are part of the bride of Christ. We are in the age of grace. We are the church of the living God. And we, we find ourselves in between these two great pillars of human history, the first coming and the second coming. Let that spur you on to joyful, loud singing. Also, I want you to consider your position spiritually. You are in Christ. You're not in Adam any longer. You are in Christ, redeemed by his blood and his righteousness. And you are under grace. Consider your position spiritually to let it fuel your worship. And finally, consider our power for worship. We are indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. We are enabled and empowered to set aside distractions, to focus our minds, to sing with faith and in the Spirit. So we have a great vantage point. We have a great position and we have adequate power to be loud and joyful in our singing. Do you come to church then at every opportunity? Are you here at every opportunity to engage in enthused worship of this King of Kings? And do you come to church prepared to sing, prepared to shout, Is your voice warmed up? Is your heart warmed up? Is your mind warmed up? These things are all part of the preparation. And then once we're here and we're standing and we're looking at the words, are we singing to the very best of our ability? That's all that God could ever ask of us, right? He's not going to ask us to sing beyond the talent that he's given us or the ability that he's given us, but he does want us to sing to the very best of the ability that he's given to us. Let that search your hearts this morning. Do you come to church at every opportunity? Do you come prepared to sing and shout? And then do you sing to the best of your ability? I think we would learn that from this great call to worship in this great momentous event of Christ coming to Jerusalem. The text goes on to tell us why we are to praise him in such a manner. It says he is just. Some translations say simply he is righteous. And he is endowed with salvation. He is the first and most perfect righteous king that there will ever be. He alone meets God's standard for kings. He alone meets God's standard for mankind. This king will be fair and honest. This king will be honorable. He is impartial and he is unbiased. He is righteous. And unlike every king before him. He always does what is right. Always. His decisions as king reflect all of the facts, not some of the facts. His decisions provide justice for all, not just justice for some. He is not like corrupt politicians throughout human history. He is not looking out for his cronies. He is not looking out for a political party. And he is not concerned about a legacy. I am so sick of hearing the word legacy in modern media. I'm so sick of everybody worried about their legacy. Well, he is not concerned about his legacy, like so many corrupt kings before him. The world has never seen a ruler like this, a ruler who will perfectly represent God on earth, 
a ruler who will mediate the kingdom rule of God on the planet. This is what the planet needs. This is what we long for. He is righteous. He is righteous as God, for he is God in human flesh. He is righteous as a perfect man, for he was born sinless. He is righteous as the God-man, two perfect natures united in one perfect person. He is righteous. And he is righteous because he earned the ultimate merit badge. Any of you guys been in the Scouts or you ladies in the Girl Scouts? You have these things called merit badges. Well, Jesus Christ earned the ultimate marriage badge. It is to keep the law of God perfectly inside and outside every moment of your life. And if you can do that, you'll be the Eagle Scout of all Eagle Scouts. You will get the ultimate merit badge. And, of course, only Jesus did it. Righteous as God, righteous as a perfect man, righteous as the God-man, and righteous as the only one who earned righteousness in our place. You know this, if you've lived any length of time at all, all of our heroes have dirty laundry All of our heroes have skeletons in the closet and are deeply flawed individuals. Some just cover it up better than others. But not this hero. Not this hero. He does right because he is right. He's not flawed. He's not perverted. He's not broken. He's not twisted. There's nothing but purity inside and out. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous. What do I take away from that? You can trust righteousness. You can trust this person without reserve. In fact, this is all you can trust. You can truly then trust this world leader. I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you to vote. But I would discourage you from ever trusting completely a human political leader. If you do so, you will make a fool of yourself. I don't care if George Washington comes back from the grave. Do not completely trust the man. (laughs) He alone is just. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with what? Salvation. If he was just, just. If he was only righteous, we would be doomed We would be undone. We would have no hope. But this just one comes, I love the word, endowed, equipped, empowered with salvation. He is victorious, the text says. That's why the translators supply in triumph there in verse 9, because he is a victorious king. He is a conquering king. I mean, even when he loses, he wins. Even when he dies, he accomplishes. Everything he does is victory. He knows nothing but continuous winning streak throughout his entire existence. The word victorious here, literally, or salvation here, is literally vindicated. 
And this is very important to God that he vindicates his name, his son, and his people. He is endowed with vindication. He is armed with power to deliver his people from the jaws of death and to vindicate his great name in doing so. This is really the theme of the Bible. God vindicating his great name through the salvation of his people and the damnation of his enemies. Jesus Christ will come to Israel at her darkest hour. He will come endowed with the right strategy for her deliverance. And he will come endowed with a pure motive of rescue based on love and grace. And he will do whatever it takes to ride into the fray and win the day. He will. He will make two trips to earth if necessary. (laughs) There will be a first coming and a second coming to ride into the fray and win the day. He does whatever it takes. He is endowed with salvation. And this is my kind of king. He is always right. He always wins. And everything he does has his subjects and his citizens in mind. All of them. All of his subjects and all of his citizens are on his heart and in his mind with every decision he makes. I ask you this morning, are you trusting the only one who will always win? Are you really trusting him? Are you depending on him and relying on him? Have you cast your all in all upon the only one who always wins? He is endowed with salvation. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a... Is that a donkey? Yes, it is. (sighs) This is our president in a pinto. (laughs) This is Jeff Bezos on a bicycle. We expect a war horse looking something like Secretariat. We get a donkey looking like something from Shrek. (laughs) Is that a donkey? This is so symbolic because a king on a warpath would ride into a city on a white horse. But a king that came in peace would ride on a donkey. A squatty little servant animal. Not glorious. Not impressive. And in this case, a foal of a donkey. This is like his birth to poor parents in a humble cave in obscure Bethlehem. This is like his upbringing in backwater Nazareth. This is like the day he submitted to John's baptism instead of baptizing John. This is like his choice of Capernaum for his ministry headquarters instead of Jerusalem where all the important people were. This is like his choice of four fishermen and one tax collector instead of chief priests and high-ranking Pharisees and Sadducees. This is like the day he took up a basin and a towel and he did the job reserved for Gentile slaves. And this is like the day that no one saw coming. When he carried a crossbeam up a hill as far as he could. And then he allowed his creatures 
to nail him to a cross. And while they were doing so, say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This is like the day of the most unexpected, deepest act of humility the world could ever possibly see when Jesus Christ died for our sins. You see, the donkey is unexpected. The donkey is shocking. In fact, it's even unsettling. The great Jewish Christian scholar who's with the Lord now, Charles Feinberg, he took it a step further. He said this word humble here in verse 9. He said it really speaks of the fact that he was bowed down with oppression and affliction and persecution. This humble speaks of his lowliness under the weight of men's rejection and betrayal and God's wrath. It speaks of Christ bearing our affliction and taking our punishment. And he is humble in this moment as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey because the betrayal is already in process and and Peter's denial is just a mere few days away. This is like a person walking in to their boss already knowing they've been fired, hat in hand, humble of heart. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Mary Magdalene, tell me about your king. Oh, he was endued with all... Power, yet he did not break this bruised reed. And he did not snuff out this smoldering wick. Mary, mother of Jesus, tell me about your king. He was the eternal word made flesh, but he never screamed at people. Peter and John, tell me about your king. Oh, he was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And yet he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He identified with us so deeply that we began to call him a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. He was so meek, in fact, that he allowed sinners to betray him with a kiss and mock him with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He was beat to a pulp with spittle running down his face. All without striking back. He could have just spoken them into eternal destruction. And yet he stood there silent as a lamb led to the slaughter. He was so humble, he made friends with people that he knew would desert him. He was so humble, he befriended a person he knew would betray him. He was so humble that he was willing to face abandonment from God himself who crushed him. He was humble to the end. And so the donkey is the perfect mode of transportation for this humble son of a carpenter, this servant of mankind, this gentle man who would die for the world. But the very next verse, verse 10 It's just like the verses that came before verse 9. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, first coming. Verse 10, second coming. Here we have a span of thousands of years between the white spaces of verse 9 and 10. This is a prophecy with a near and a far fulfillment. The same person who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey will one day ride in on a white stallion, conquering. He will ride in creating war as a warrior. But that's not today. Today is the age of the donkey. Today is the day of salvation, the moment of mercy. We are in the age of the donkey, not the white stallion. Today he is building his church, not judging the world. Today he is calling his sheep, not purging the goats. Today his eyes are gentle, not a flame of fire. Today he wears a crown of thorns, not many diadems. Today he's followed by persecuted disciples, not the armies of heaven. And today from his mouth comes an invitation, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Today from his mouth comes an invitation, I love you because I died for you, he says to the world. Today from his mouth is words of love and mercy, not a sword to strike down the nations. That day is not today. Today is a moment of mercy. Today he rules with a rod of good news, not a rod of iron. Today is the age of the lowly, humble, servant donkey. Do you know this humble king? Do you know this gentle Messiah? If not, will you receive him today into your city, into your house, and into your heart? Because, listen, he comes to do you good. He comes to do you good. Will you receive him today into your broken life and into your sin-weary soul? He comes to do you good. He is endowed with salvation and he can clothe you in righteousness. He can give you what you don't have and what you desperately need. My fear always every Sunday is that there are some here who are like a walled city and your gates are closed tight to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand before you this morning to say that humble Jesus is riding your way to offer you a triumphal entry into your heart and into your life, to lay claim to your soul. Will the gates be opened or will they stay closed forever? That is the question. What will you do with this man who once rode a donkey? Let's pray. Father, may your sweet gospel through Jesus Christ land on a sour heart. May you lay claim to a lost soul this morning. May you give the sinner the willingness to be willing. 
to invite the Savior in, the gates to be thrown open, and King Jesus to take his rightful place upon the throne of every heart. Lord, we pray today that someone came into this building and they were not a worshiper of God, but they will leave here as one. And they'll come back next Sunday ready to rejoice greatly and to shout in victory for our crucified king is alive. Lord, would you raise the dead for your own glory For the sake of your name, we pray, amen.